Welcome, everyone, to episode number 56 of the Learn to Lead podcast. In this episode, I'm excited to bring you an interview that I did with Dr. Jim Withers. And uh, Jim Withers is actually known as the homeless doctor. Uh, He's the founder of Operation Safety Net, which I'll talk to you about in a minute. Um, And Jim Withers got on my my radar because at Light of Life, where I work, we help the homeless. And so I've heard about Jim's work. He does a lot of street work with the homeless uh, that you'll hear about. And I've just heard, um, I Googled him, I researched him, and in fact, I would encourage encourage you to Google Dr. Jim Withers and you'll be able to read article after article and video clip after video clip of, uh, of the work that he's doing um, for the homeless, which is just incredible. But after I read about him, I thought I would love to just spend you know, 30 minutes with this guy asking him questions and just learning from him and obviously sharing that with you, the listeners, and I know that uh, you'll be blessed by listening to this interview as well. So with that being said, let me just tell you a little bit about Jim and what he does and then we'll jump into the interview. In 1992, Dr. Jim Withers, an internal medicine physician, began providing medical care to Pittsburgh's unsheltered homeless population. He partnered with street-savvy, formerly homeless individuals, and initially dressing as a homeless person, began to make a nighttime street rounds in the alleys and under the bridges of the city of Pittsburgh. From this initial outreach service, other clinical volunteers joined in, and Operation Safety Net was born. Today, Operation Safety Net is recognized as one of the nation's first targeted full-time street medicine programs. It continues to set the standard for this unique form of health care. The people they serve have taught them how to best address their needs in the context of their real lives. By developing trust and fostering deep personal connections with the individuals we serve, we are able to partner with them and find solutions. Uh, This interview will really give you a sense of of how you can truly make a difference in the lives of those in need. Um, I know oftentimes, even before I started working at Light of Life, uh, you know, I think everyone knows they're supposed to help the homeless, but I think too many times we just don't know how to do that or what that actually looks like. Um, And I think this interview will really help you see how you can make a difference in the lives of those in need, um, but also become a leader in that space regardless of of where you are in life. And so uh, I would really encourage you to listen to this all the way through. You can find out uh, the questions that I asked, some of my key takeaways and ways to connect with what Jim's doing in the show notes. And I know that this interview will add value to your life. Uh, as always, if you want to listen to other interviews that I've done in the past, you can go to our Learning to Lead podcast page at Doug Smith Live backslash uh, Learning to Lead podcast. And if you want to keep up with what we're doing, um, you can sign up for our email list. Uh, that we send email updates with everything that we're doing for Learning to Lead, and you can sign up for that in the show notes as well. So that being said, let's jump right into the interview. Enjoy this with Jim. Thanks. Well, yeah, start telling us a little bit about you, how Operation Safety Net started, uh, and what you guys do. Okay. Well, Operation Safety Net um, started back in uh, 1992. At that time, I was a fairly new um, uh, faculty member of the Mercy Hospital, internal medicine department, teaching internal medicine to medical residents and students. And uh, because of my childhood, which... I was very blessed to have um, a family practice doctor, father, um, who took me on house calls, and my mother was a nurse, and um, we actually worked as a family in Central America on a number of occasions. So the idea of service and um, mission as far as healthcare was all natural to me. When I got to medical school, I realized that that wasn't always the way that my peers or the healthcare industry saw things. Mm. And uh, 
I decided to go into teaching, partly because of the uh, the negative experiences I had as a student, and to uh, maybe address to some degree that the need for a uh, a deeper meaning in in healthcare, because to me, you know, I saw things one way and. When you're alone, you don't have a mentors or someone who see what's inside of you and what you're trying to do. Uh, it's very discouraging. And there were people like that along the way that just kind of came out of the desert and said, I see where you're coming from, and um, it's good. Don't give up. And so I wanted to be there for people in that in that way who were coming up and pass along the values and the blessings that I had naturally gotten growing up. So I chose um, the Mercy Health System being a faith-based medical organization. I never worked there. <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm not Catholic, but you know, I could see that they were committed to the poor, and, and, uh, and so that's where I did my training, hoping that I could develop in that soil a um, a career and hopefully a teaching component that would match my faith and my um, my vision for who I wanted to be and it wasn't straightforward but uh, it did it did allow me has allowed me that opportunity so I worked it's a long story but I worked with uh, the issue of domestic violence in the late 80s and having seen things like that in India when I was a student there you know I had a, a heart for those who were abused <clears throat> and the more I looked in the, in the medical world the more I found it and what I realized was that it was a profound and common issue and nobody was seeing it we were just processing people medically, and um, they weren't getting fixed. <laughs> they'd come back over and over. They'd die. Um, and I worked on that issue with the Women's Center, became a slight expert on it. <clears throat> we gave lectures at most of the major hospitals with me and a woman from the center. And I developed uh, some uh, program solutions, I guess you call them, at the at the hospital, a consult service for domestic violence and uh, better referrals and education. That kind of took off, and better people than I came along to keep it going. But uh, I backed away as an educator, and I realized that, you know, there's a the deeper problem was that we couldn't see people for who they were. We couldn't be with them in their reality. And I know that sounds pretty existential or whatever, but um, it basically was we needed to make a house call to the person. And that could be someone in a busy hospital, or it could be someone who never is going to see health care. 
but we have to learn how to uh, humbly go to people and say, you, let me know who you are. Um, I see a lot of that as a grace-based approach. Um, coming to someone and saying, I'm not going to judge you. Um, I'm not going to pigeonhole you. I'm not going to define you. Um, I have expertise and I have things that I'd love to help you with, but um, you're responsible for your health. And I want to learn how to partner with you in that process. And a lot of times we, we never lay that groundwork with people. And so they're really not partners in their own healing. And the domestic violence victims taught me a lot about that because they had to take, ultimately, they had to take back control of their lives. Uh, but you can't charge in like a bull or you make things worse. So it's a real art form that I began to lo- uh, love more and more. But how do you teach something like that? It's hard to do it. You can do it in a busy hospital or emergency room, but um, it takes. It's like it's like teaching someone um, calculus during, you know, uh, as while they're doing a short order cook service or something. It's just it's hard, yeah. you know, because it's a it's it requires a little retreat, if you will, from the pressures of regular work. So I thought, I I need to go overseas, and I tried that. I went a couple places with residents, and I thought, no, this is only one person at a time, um, and it's not accountable to my own community, and that's really what I wanted. I wanted a classroom that had three three qualities. The first was it had to be local uh, with people that were here in our community who were not getting essentially the care that they needed. Um, the second was um, that, well, that they had to be people that were um, alienated and excluded, the lepers, if you will, of our community. And then the third thing was I wanted people who were stubborn and ornery and would refuse to um, do what I told them just because I told them. In other words, I would have to figure out how to make it work for them. And so I got more and more interested in homeless people. So that's a long introduction, but that's kind of the way my mind was working. Um, and I, you know, I reached a point in '91, '92 where I just couldn't. I couldn't stay in the hospital anymore. It was almost like I was being compelled to do something else. And um, when I decided that, that it was homeless folks, particularly the ones that were outdoors, that I thought would be the, my best teachers, um, then I tried to figure out a way to find them and get to them. And one of the first things I did was I started volunteering at Light of Life, serving food. And uh, just watching people go by, they didn't know who I was. That was really uh, good for me, and um, I felt good about it. And um, and then as I got a tour of the city and looked at all the different shelters and soup kitchens and things like that, um, 
I realized that they did, there wasn't a clinic at Light of Life, so I helped start the uh, physician house call center, it was called, and did medical work there for 10 years. Uh, but around the same time, I was looking to get under bridges. And so I began asking around, is anyone going under the bridges? Is anyone going under the bridges? And uh, I was told that there was a guy, Mike Sallows, who was, uh, who was out there giving out food and blankets. And actually a group of homeless people from Wood Street Commons were beginning to go out. So I connected with them, asked if I could come along. And uh, Mike said, well, you can't dress like a doctor. He, um, and you, you can't act like a jerk and those are his two rules to me um, and so I went overboard I went to the church library and I found a book called 52 Ways to Help the Homeless and one of the chapters told you how to dress like a homeless person so you could mingle and it said you know, put coffee grounds in your hair don't shave and, and don't open your mouth uh, because which is good advice, but mostly because he didn't want you to, them to see your teeth were good, good or whatever. So that was how to blend in. So I showed up like that, awesome. and Mike just said, um, "Okay, you got the look, and see if you can keep up." And off he off we went. So I didn't tell the hospital, I didn't tell the insurance carrier or anybody. Um, I just started going out one, two, three times a week. Um, we were out till the wee hours of the morning. And I realized there were so many people out there, and so many of them were really sick. And you know, within a couple of nights, I realized that I was I'd gone into something I couldn't go back from. Uh, didn't know what it was, but I realized I was kind of going forward in faith. Um, I guess I already had at that point, but um, so that's been my major journey professionally. And um, here we are, 22 and a half years later. Um, Operation Safety Net locally is uh, a fully functioning, uh, what I call street medicine program now. We have 30 employees. We've housed 1,200 people in the last 11 years. Um, we make we, we visit people in their apartments. We work on their legal issues. We've integrated them into primary care. Um, we educate students, um, dozens of students every year come from all over the world. And then I started an international meeting. I, I went back to India in 93, and I met a doctor in Calcutta who worked um, on the street. I was there for other reasons. I actually met Mother Teresa there, too. That was a cool, yeah. thing, cool thing. What was that like? It was neat. It was neat. Um, I thought I was real clever. I learned the name of the administrator, and I showed up at their door, and I explained what I do, and the nun said, uh, oh, that's very nice. And uh, so I pulled my card out, and I, or my, my ace, and I said, can I speak to Sister Shante? And they said, um, oh, she's very busy, but you can talk to Mother Teresa if you want. <laughs> and, and I said, okay, that'll do. Yeah. And, uh, and so she had to finish her prayers, but I went up and... Um, Talked for almost an hour, wow. and um, it really was. One of the cool things is my dad had given me a hundred dollar bill for my birthday, and I had that hundred dollar bill. And when we were done, it was just such a great feeling to just put that hundred dollar bill between those little hands. It was great. 
What, what, just out of curiosity, what, what struck you about Mother Teresa getting to be around a, a world-class leader? I've been actually able to meet with a lot of amazing people under bridges and in places of power. Quite a journey. But um, she had a characteristic which I recognize. Um, she was forward-looking. She's 80-some years old, but she was sharp. She was curious. And... Um, I mean, if, if you want to ask me what my impression of, of her leadership is, I think something that I, I'd like to think I have a little bit in common is that by focusing on values, and the value that she saw was the dignity of each person and that they're, they're each created by God and that there's God's love available. I think by focusing on that, then she created ripples that could affect, and that, that's God's work, what, it, what happened with those ripples. Hmm. But she was really good at, um, as they say in basketball, the fundamentals. I mean, she stuck to those, made them really, really clear, and then that was what I think carried um, a lot of the influence that God, God gave her. Um, but I, I was I was also really impressed with her as a person because she was she was curious and I love curiosity. Um, I went to see Jack Prager then the doctor there and uh, he's now eighty three and I saw him two weeks ago. Um, he was in my epiphany because I met someone who finally was doing the same thing as I was and I thought I was completely alone hmm. as a undercover street doctor. Yeah. Um, and so since that 93, I've had people come here. I've traveled all over the world um, to find anyone who's doing this work and connect them. And that has become my bigger calling, I think. Um, I love the work here. I feel like I have to keep doing it because I love it, because of the students that I work with, because of the people. Um, and I feel like you need credibility. You have to keep walking the walk. But... I've really been also blessed to have this global movement. And so I gathered the first international street. I gave it a name. I called it street medicine as a field. And then I was able to gather the first international street medicine group in Pittsburgh in 2005. And we met here. And to me it was like having Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron and all those guys, Field of Dreams, like they're here. I was just hoping the, the roof didn't collapse because it was like, <laughs> if these people are killed, you know, street medicine will just be set back forever. Um, but the reverse, of course, is that we just had our 10th international street medicine meeting in Dublin two weeks ago. And uh, two or three. And uh, we had a record attendance. Pioneers, students from six continents were there. And we started the Street Medicine Institute in 2009, to, which is a different organization, to um, be the home of this medical field because it's kind of a homeless specialty. It doesn't really have a, a home. And the Street Medicine Institute is, um, I hope, will be 
um, a, a place. We've been doing this where people can who want to start programs in other cities can go to for uh, best practices for how to do it. Um, I I've been kind of a one man Johnny Appleseed for that for most of the time. Um, I have a manual I made. I go. I give lectures to their stakeholders. I go on the street with them. I work intensively with their uh, whoever's called to go under their bridge. And then ideally they come here and they round with us. And then if all's well, a new street medicine program gets born. So the vision is that every every person sleeping on the streets in the world, as long as they have to be out there, will have direct access to non-judgmental medical care that fits them. And the other vision statement is that every medical school, every health science school, should have a classroom of the streets where people can have the transformative experience of being with people, seeing how it looks from the outside. And I'm, we've had a lot of students who've come through, people who've become doctors because, or nurses because of hearing about this work. That is what crystallized it for them. And then of students that I've had, many of whom are much smarter than I, uh, they've started their own programs. Um, programs are starting as we speak in medical schools. The students are demanding it. They're finding their own faculty members and making it happen. Um, and great stuff. So it, all that is God's um, blessing. And a lot of a lot of lessons that I have to chuckle at, you know. Um, it's been, but it's been a fi- there's been a fishes and loaves story, and then a fishes and loaves story on top of the fishes and loaves story. If you, you know, as far as the global thing. Um, and it's it's given me a very wonderful professional life. That's great. So in all your experience working with with really the what Jesus called the least of these, men on the street, homeless, et cetera, just people in need. What do you wish people knew about the homeless uh, that they don't know? I mean, I, I wish that they could see them. Through 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 God's eyes, which is never really possible. I wish they could they could say in their heart, "This could be me." But as far as looking at them from the external side, I think I wish they could see the strength that they have. Um, there's a lot of destruction, destructive behavior, and um, self-hate, and um, and pain. But there's also a lot of strength in just getting up and living through another day. Um, there are people with great talents out there. Um, people who um, who had the leprosy experience basically and they feel like no one loves them they don't love themselves sometimes Uh, but they're not dead they're getting up and uh, they've made me laugh they've given me encouragement they have um, they've been my friend when I had very few 
and uh, so the human spirit that people have I think I wish people could see um, that strong side of people I love that we were talking about this a little bit before but I found myself in this position before I worked here but I, I find a lot of people know we're supposed to help the homeless know we're supposed to help those in need but all too often we just don't know how mm-hmm if you had to rewrite, and you don't have to get 52 ways, but if you had to write that book, 52 Ways to Help the Homeless or Help Those in Need, what, what would your encouragement be to people? Get to know them as individuals. There was a paramedic. I, gave, I, I, I helped. Uh, there was, well, everything has a story. Gosh. <laughs> I'll tell this one really fast because it's interesting. They're all amazing stories. But there was a student who came to me after a speech in Washington, D.C. And she said, I want to do what you do. And I said, why? She says, I was homeless when I was a child. And so she came to Pittsburgh and worked with me, and then I continued to be a sort of a mentor to her. And ultimately, she was able to start um, Doctors Without Walls or Santa Barbara Street Medicine in, in Santa Barbara. And that program now has um, 100 undergrad students that work with them, and they, they're an engine for idealism. It's just one of many, but... Um, I went out to speak there this early spring and a paramedic came up to me afterwards in a full uniform and she said I think I want to work with these people and I said good and I said why she said because I hate the homeless I hate them and I said okay I'm listening and uh, she said I'm a paramedic I try to help these folks, and they don't treat me like a human being. They spit on me, they yell at me, and I'm tired of it. I don't want to be seen that way. I want to work with them the way you work with them. Um, and I encouraged her. And then I came back um, to, to, to meet again and did rounds with them. Um, on my way to another city I was talking in and this girl runs up to me with a volunteer shirt on and she looked familiar and she said remember me Um, I'm a volunteer now and I'm loving this and uh, it's so much so much of a relief to be able to do work like this Um, she said some of my paramedic friends um, are angry at me because I'm working with those people But some of them are interested in volunteering. And to me, that's that's just kind of spoke to the whole issue of us and them that um, I think needs to be addressed. So if I was to work on that book, um, I have to go back and read it again, I guess. It was actually a pretty good book, I thought, at the time. Um, but I think the anything that can help people uh, humanize not just the people on the street, but themselves, because we get ourselves, um, we write scripts for ourselves. You know, I'm the, I'm the repentant sinner, or I'm the, I'm the superhero, or you know, whatever the script is, and then you apply to try to play out your role, and that only takes you so far. And I think the real courage is to just say, I'm just a person, and. You're just a person, and um, let's get to know each other that way. That's excellent. 
We have about four minutes, so I have three questions I want to ask if we have time for it. Sure, sure. Um, one, you've seen a lot of pain. I'm sure you've seen all kind of crazy things. How do you process pain as a leader or as a human being when you see it and you're in the trenches? Well, I guess I was exposed to a lot of stuff even as a kid. Hmm. Um, when I was just uh, maybe... 14, maybe younger, um, we were working in Guatemala, and my uh, my parents put me in charge of a little girl that was dying of malnutrition, and I was to push a little bit of feeding solution into a syringe every so often, and so she was really my first patient, and I came in and I saw, I found her, she had died. And I didn't know my Spanish, and I had to go tell people about her death. Um, and yet, I felt like I had been given a great honor to be her <laughs> pre-doctor or whatever I was. And uh, so I see the job as a sacred um, responsibility. And in that, I feel like there's going to be, you're going to see everything. You're going to see the pain. And that uh, to be able to witness it and be present through that is sometimes the highest calling, not the, uh, not the skills that you have. Um, I did work as a medical student with dying children that was kind of rough and um, and I think there's another time when I I felt like this is um, really really rough but it's also extremely special to give comfort and to because um, we're all going to die and I think ideally you know we should reflect the hope that we have for uh, the meaning of this life, but also for the, what's to come, and uh, and just be a good companion for the people that are leaving earlier than we are. So that's 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 kind of maybe over the top, but I I feel like um, it becomes it becomes a bigger part of who you are. I don't want to become calloused to suffering. I think that's can be a cowardly thing to do is to get hardened and cynical and those guys look tough but they're not as tough because they're not um, they're not feeling anymore. That's good. That's for beginners. <laughs> that's great. Last two questions. What do you want you what do you want to be remembered for? What do you want your legacy to be? I'd like to be remembered for a guy who tried to be um, God's servant, a good dad, (laughs) Um, good friend, and um, 
maybe a troublemaker in a, in, in a good in a good in a good way. That's awesome. Anything else with that? Nah. And then last question: Just how, how can we, if someone's listening to this and say, "Wow, I really want to be a part of Operation Safety Net," how can we support you or partner with what you're doing? Well, I think anyone that's moved by that, there's some reason, and maybe they should reflect on why they are feeling that way and it probably means that they have something special that connects and maybe they could articulate that to to us or to a partner group and say you know here's how I I'm, I'm feeling called and this is what I what I feel and then bring that you know to our overall um, community effort um, So, I don't have a I don't have a checklist other than yeah we can use we can use donations we can use uh, um, volunteers we can use uh, men's white socks sizes six to twelve you know <laughs> all that stuff yeah but I think you know that probably um, there's a reason someone would feel that way and um, maybe maybe we're something we should be hearing about from them. That's great. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Sure. Thanks for what you do for Pittsburgh, the kingdom, and all this incredible.